Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was told um, that some of my predecessors would pray that prayer, and then they didn't always give very good sermons. And uh, when I first used that prayer, I think it caused people to be nervous um, for good reason, because I don't always give good sermons. Um, But uh, I grew up with that prayer being offered by my pastor before his sermons, and he always seemed to give a good one. It was more a prayer for me that the meditations of my heart would be pleasing (laughs) to God, um, because his words were always powerful. We've been walking through the parable of the the prodigal son, and I think it might be better called the prodigal sons. It might even be better called the forgiving father. Um, There's all sorts of rich, deep layers in this story that Jesus told. And just to begin our time together, let me read the story again uh, from Luke chapter 15, verse 11 and following. And the words will be on the screen if you uh, happen to forget your Bible or you brought coffee instead of your Bible today. So hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You know, this story needs so little introduction. There's phrases in it that have just become part of our culture The fatted calf, that idea comes from this story. We sang another idea that came from this story, lost and found. Amazing grace. And that idea came from Jesus from this story. 
And we've been walking through and we've been looking at different phrases from the story and using that as a, a means of reflecting upon the story and reflecting upon God and reflecting about Christ and his intention in telling this story. And one of the things you need to know is that Jesus told this story in response to mumblers. Ever known a mumbler? They're your favorite people, aren't they? And the mumblers, they were the religious people. They were the Pharisees. And they were mumbling and grumbling. They didn't like the company that Jesus was keeping. Earlier in the chapter, we see that the company Jesus was keeping was he was hanging out with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. I don't know any tax collectors. I know accountants. I don't know any prostitutes. I know a lot of sinners. Now, these sinners, though, were in a little different category than the sinners I know. I know some that would be in this category, but these were on-purpose sinners. These are folks that have just made a career of sinning. And for good reason, because there is no provision in the Hebrew-Israelite religion to get them off the hook for their sin. There's no sacrifice they can offer. There's nothing they can do to make them right with God. Read through the book of Leviticus and you will see that there is no sacrifice that can be made for intentional rebellious sin. And these people, they cross that line. Once you cross the line, you might as well just live on that side of the line. Live on that side of the tracks. And they know their plight. They know there's no hope for them. And the Pharisees know it. My goodness, all of society knows it. And that's why when Jesus spends time on the wrong side of the tracks, it irritates them. They get after them. They mumble and they grumble. It's interesting to me that the people who are nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And it's also interesting that Jesus liked the people who were nothing like him. How often does that play out in church world? How often do churches look like that? Jesus tells the story for the benefit of the Pharisees. Jesus tells the story for the mumblers and the grumblers. We'll get to the mumblers and the grumblers in a bit. But we want to focus on a particular phrase today. The phrase that I want to consider is the phrase, and he kissed him. And he kissed him. We want to look at the father and his actions, his behaviors in this story. And he's a very atypical father. In fact, there's caution in this tale that we need to exercise. Number one, we need to understand the parable in the way that Jesus told it. And he wasn't asked, so Jesus, how can I be a good parent? This is not a parable to teach us about parenting. There's some aspects and there might be some carryover, but sometimes we parent rebellious kids who are addicted and who need to have a stern, you know, talking to. They need to experience consequence for their behavior. 
So it's not a parable about how to parent. This is a parable telling us about the love of the Father. This is a parable that everybody would agree is ultimately about forgiveness. One thing we see about the Father's forgiveness in this parable is that it is assertive. It is aggressive. Notice that as we read it, he saw his son from a long way off. Dad's on the porch every day. And every day, dad is scanning the horizon, looking for his son. Hoping, praying that he will return. Some of you as parents and as grandparents know what that's like. You know how that feels. You know the heartbreak of a child who has gone rogue. Gone their own way. Making decisions that aren't the best. Some of you have walked that path and you know the heartache you caused your parents. In this story, there's great heartache on the part of the father. It starts by the younger son saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. That's a paraphrase. I... It's literally what he's saying. Any of you have the nerve to ask your parents for your share of the inheritance now? Especially if a lot of your inheritance is in land, which this kid's was, where the land will have to be sold, disposed of, so that the young man can get the cash out of it. The father should have beat him. The father should have given him a good whooping. He should have taken him behind the woodshed. He should have put the young man in his place. This would not make a good focus on the family episode. This is not how you're supposed to do it. You're not supposed to go, yes, son, absolutely, here you go. But the father does. He puts it on the line. He understands that the way to the kid's heart is to get rid of the stuff. Because the son wants stuff and not the father. So the son takes the stuff, sells the stuff, gets the money, goes off and lives riotous good time living. He squanders the money. And for a Jew to work with pigs, well, I mean, you know that they don't go to Chili's, right? For baby backs. And for a a Jewish person to be in a far-off country feeding pigs, it's as low as you can go. And he comes to his senses, and we looked at that a few weeks ago, and he decides, I will pay my dad back. And there's a couple ways that he needs to pay dad back. One is financially, because he has forever brought the family's economic fortunes down. He squandered a third of the family's wealth. It's gone. Never to be gotten back. Dad parceled off some of the land. So now he's got a neighbor he may or may not like who owns some of his, what was his land, thanks to his son. He'll never get that back. He's also done something to his father, though, that In a small town, we can get our brains around it a little bit. 
but not near what it was in this culture. He has brought shame and dishonor on the family. He's brought shame and dishonor upon the name of the family. I didn't understand this growing up in the suburbs. None of the Smiths were related. None of the Jones either. But here, I regularly do funerals and I see some of you at the funeral. You don't even share the last name, but somehow you're related. And then I start going, did I say anything bad ever about this person? (laughs) You see, this son has brought shame and disgrace on dear old dad in the family. Dad has lost standing in the community. Can you imagine some of the discussions around coffee in town? Did you hear what he did with his son? What a moron. What an idiot. How crazy would that be? I would have just taken that kid out and smacked him around a few times, put him in his place. That's what he should have done. How do I know that that happens at coffee? Because I've been to coffee. (laughs) This father lost standing. And the son plans to pay this back by being a hired man. By saying, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He knows he's brought shame and disgrace on the family and he devises a plan to pay dad back financially and socially to make dad look good in the process of taking him back while a long way off dad sees him and runs this also is shocking to the original audience And perhaps some of us, some of you have had hip replacements and knee replacements, some of you dads, and you don't run anymore. I had to tell my son last night, I used to be a good athlete. I even dunked the basketball one time in a game. And he was shocked. (laughs) I was too at the time. See, I don't run much anymore. My knee, it hurts when I run. My hamstrings hurt when I run. Didn't help because in my early 20s, I was playing flag football one day and I blew out a hamstring. And it took several months to heal because my mind was writing checks my body couldn't cash. And this dear old dad runs to grab and embrace and kiss his adult son. And so not only just the physical the physicality of running for an older man. But in this culture, he wore a dress, a robe. You've been to the Christmas cantatas and seen the kids? That's what they wore. They didn't have workout gear. Spandex had not been invented yet. Thank God, right? (laughs) Nikes weren't around. If you were the superior person, you allowed the inferior person to approach you. You let them come to you. Remember the the dust-up that happened when our president showed deference to another head of state? Some people got really angry. Why? Because we were thinking, well, we're superior to them. And our leader is superior to their leader. He should not show deference. 
And that's what was going on with dad running to son. Dad is showing deference to the son. Dad in his behavior is bringing upon himself shame. Imagine the scene and the discussions that happened at coffee after this one. I saw his legs. I'd never seen his legs before. There's some things in life you should not see, and I wish I hadn't seen his legs. As he picked up his robe and ran to embrace his son, I saw him run. There's some sights that you cannot unsee. And I wish I hadn't seen my neighbor running to his son. Not only that, I mean, I thought we were under attack. I thought somebody was coming over the ridge to burn his home down. That's why you run in the ancient world. But he ran to embrace, you know, that kid squandered the money, brought shame upon him. Not only that, he threw himself on his son. He draped himself on his neck and kissed him. You know, if your son, who happens to be an idiot, stupid, foolish, returns to you, you think they're returning to repent? They're probably showing up to get more money, don't you think? That's why an idiot, a foolish son, returns home. I ran out of money, Dad. I was wondering if I could get another 20 bucks. But Dad doesn't stand on the porch waiting. He runs to the sun. This is where this whole story gets a little irritating for us. Is God's aggressive forgiveness of this prodigal son? Because the scriptures tell us that we are supposed to be like the Father. The scriptures tell us That as the Father forgave us, so should we forgive others. Oh, I hate that. If I'm really honest. Because that means I have to be aggressive and assertive in my forgiveness of other people. Jesus in Mark 11 said that if you are at temple, if you're at church and you're praying and you remember that you have something against somebody, forgive them. In Matthew 5, he says... If you are giving a sacrifice and then you remember that somebody has something against you, go, leave your sacrifice, talk to them. So whether we hurt them or they hurt us, Jesus' counsel is this. You go. You forgive. That's irritating. Because we all want to stand on our porch. And we want to say, well... If they'd make the first move, then I'd probably forgive them. We want to stand on our porch and we say, you know what? They started it. They're to blame. It's their fault. If they show up, they come here, then perhaps, maybe. Jesus says the ball's always in your court. Jesus says, as a follower of him, you are always the one expected to make the first move in forgiveness. That's irritating. That's what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world, what's wrong with the church, is that people stand on their porch waiting. They show up, they say they're sorry. 
they do what I want, if they grovel well enough, then maybe. But we're supposed to be like our father who runs, drapes, blesses, kisses. Another thing we see is that this forgiveness is sacrificial. It sacrifices because there's a debt that has to be paid. There's a financial debt. There's a social debt. And the only way to deal with this debt is that the son has to pay it back or the father has to absorb that debt. Those are the only options. And every time you have been wronged by somebody, there has been a debt that needs to be paid. There always is. Whenever somebody sins against you, whenever somebody hurts you, whenever somebody's angry with you and takes it out upon you in some way by ignoring you, by rejecting you, there's a debt and it has to be paid. And that's why we stand on our porch. We're waiting for them to come and to pay the debt. But there's another option. We can choose to absorb the debt. And see, at its heart, that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is choosing to absorb the pain rather than inflicting more pain. Absorb the pain rather than inflict the pain. That's what forgiveness is at its heart. But we don't live in a world that gets this. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because Jesus does not say, oh, by the way, this world is my kingdom. You live here. So everything that this world does is correct and right. No, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It is drawing near to you. It is in the person of Jesus. And he comes and he starts to say, everything you've learned, everything that goes on in this world is upside down wrong. He says, you need to forgive and quit, and quit inflicting pain on others. Well, Steve, you just don't understand. I mean, if you knew what jerk they were, some of you would use more colorful language, I'm sure. If you knew what they had done to me, to my family, to my business, to my home, to my st- stuff, my things, my kids, if you knew the pain they inflicted on me, my family. Well, it sounds like we need some help in doing this. Because I join that chorus. I join that chorus of voices. I say, if you only knew what they'd done to me, to my kids, to my family, to my spouse, to my stuff, to my things, you would know I have a right to hold on to unforgiveness to become bitter and angry and stand on my porch. It seems like we need some power outside of ourselves to to get this right. It seems like we need help in this because if you're left to your own devices, you will never figure this out. You will never be able to forgive. You'll never have a story like the Amish people in Pennsylvania who forgave the young man who went into a classroom and brutally murdered at gunpoint 10 girls, 
turned the gun on himself and killed himself. And his mother lived in that Amish community. And she was going to move away because of the shame and the disgrace that came upon her because of her son's behavior. But they said, stay, we forgive you. We forgive your son. And years later, it was discovered that that woman had become the caregiver of one of the girls that survived a gun wound inflicted by her own son. What power allows people to do that? Is this something you just do by willpower? I'm just going to try harder, do my best, wake up and remind myself every morning, I'm not really mad at them. I don't really hate them. Where does it come from, this ability to forgive people who have greatly wounded us? (laughs) First, it comes by not seeing ourselves as superior. It's better. This is a message for churchy people, this part. We have a tendency to look down our nose at the good Lord people. You know the people I'm talking about, right? The good Lord, look at them. Good Lord. What a shame. What a horrible person. How could they behave that way? Why would they do such a thing? They are terrible. Remember, Jesus is talking to grumblers and mumblers. He's talking to professionals to religious people. He's talking to self-righteous people and self-righteous people. And I don't care how long you've been in the church. Churches tend to stray from the gospel the longer they're in existence. This one's been in existence for over 100 years. We have probably had opportunities to stray from the gospel. And the longer you are a follower of Jesus, the more opportunities you have to stray from the gospel and to trust in your own self-righteousness, to trust in how good you are and how good you think you're becoming and how nice a person you are and how good a reputation you have and how much money you have in the bank and how you don't do the things that those people do. It's a young minister and he was counseling a couple and it was revealed in counseling that the wife had an affair He was helping the young man to forgive his wife and things were going really well. The young man was being very accepting and very forgiving. And the pastor thought, boy, I am so good at pastoral counseling. When all of a sudden it was revealed by the young man that he too was having an affair. And the reason he was forgiving his wife so well is because he was in the same boat. And in reality, that's how you kill superiority you realize that you're in the same boat earlier when i said jesus liked people that were nothing like him do you know who fits in that category everybody if jesus didn't like people who were nothing like him he wouldn't like any at all he'd like no one he'd have been wasting time showing up here Because elsewhere in the scriptures, it tells us that our righteousness falls exceedingly short of the righteousness of God. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our greatest best deeds are like rags before God. You see, I love this quote from Tim Keller. It says, if you understand the gospel, 
If you understand you're so lost that it took the death of the Lord of the universe to save you, if you really understand that in your heart of hearts, you cannot look at anybody and say anything other than, I'm no better than you. I mean, let that sink in. He goes on, he says, if you stay angry at, any, at somebody, but you say, well, I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. Think of it this way. You don't know you're a sinner saved by grace if you stay angry at someone. You may say it in your head, but you don't know it in your heart. Or you couldn't stay mad because you're no better. You see, the gospel gives you power to resist seeing yourself as better being superior and that's one of the things that keeps us in our unforgiveness and locked in a grudge the other thing that keeps us locked in a grudge is keeping people liable on the hook we want them to pay us back they owe us something instead of absorbing the debt we inflict pain We have our hooks in them. You know, another resource for us to forgive people is to recognize all that we have in the person of Jesus. You know, when you have no money in the bank, it's really hard to forgive a $100 debt. But if you have a billion dollars in the bank, which I don't, by the way, so I'm using my imagination, If you had a billion dollars in the bank, I bet it's rather easy to forgive a $100 debt. I'd go further. If you have a billion dollars, it's easy to forgive a $1,000 debt. I'd go one further. If you have a billion dollars in the bank, it's easy to forgive a $100,000 debt. That's a minute percentage of that kind of wealth. And if you and I understood what we have in Jesus Christ, that in Christ, we are the world's first trillionaire. That we are heirs to the promises of God through the person of Jesus Christ. That all that you see will one day be yours. It will be yours because it's his and you are co-heirs with Christ. There is nothing that someone can do to you that inflicts enough suffering, enough pain, enough damage that you cannot forgive it because of the wealth and the riches you have in Christ. How could you just sit there in your anger? You don't understand what he has accomplished for you. You don't understand how petty it is. Put another way, what did Jesus do for us? He lived in heaven. Last I checked, that's a nice place. I've heard it. It was a nice place. I've never been. Some people think Ray's heaven. Great. It's nice. It's it's okay. It's got a funny smell on livestock days. Some people say it's the smell of money. My money doesn't smell like that, but... You don't notice that smell when you drive by the bank, but anyways... Jesus came from heaven to earth, a place with funny smells and death and suffering. The Apostle Paul goes so far to say that while we were yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for us. 
And Jesus shows up here and he's born a helpless baby. He's raised by a couple of kids trying to figure it out. He took a huge risk, a risk that he knew could lead to rejection and scorn and ridicule. And not just could, it did. And not just rejection, but death, his death on a cross. And he knew these things would happen. And yet he still showed up. He still came. You see, this message is dangerous because some of you are going to go out and try to apply this and you're going to instantly discover that it's hard. Because in order to forgive somebody, there's always suffering involved. And if you haven't gotten the memo yet, that's what the Christian life is about. Suffering. If you go to a church that says otherwise... Get back to me when you suffer next. You see, the Christian life is about suffering. If they killed our leader, our Lord, what will they do to us? You see, in the Disneyland of world history, the world is very different outside the gates. We live in the gated community of world history. But the Christians in Syria today, the Christians in Damascus, the Christians in Nigeria, the Christians who are assembled there and are fearful that a suicide bomber, if you don't believe me, go to YouTube and video it, look it up and watch grainy, shaking cell phone video of a suicide bomber running into a church, blowing up brothers and sisters because of where they're at on a Sunday. And today we will drink coffee and we will sing happy, clappy Jesus songs and we will go to lunch and watch a Bronco game because we live in Disney World. But our brothers and sisters know that the gospel calls us to suffer. The gospel calls us to a life of suffering because all of life is forgiveness. All of life is repentance. All of life is recognizing that we must absorb the debt like Christ did and not inflict pain. I know this is a hard message, but it needn't be. The reason it needn't be is because of the glory of the truth that God will run to you and kiss you one day. One day when you get to heaven, he'll see you from a long way off. He will run to you. He will throw his arms around you. He will drape himself on your neck. He will kiss you. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. This passage, this parable is a picture of that day yet to come. Don't be distracted by Disney World. Do not believe the lies of this world. 
understand that you are called to a life of suffering, to a life of forgiveness, to a life of absorbing pain and death so that people might know the risen Christ, the Lord of the universe who died for you and for me. I believe on that day, it'll just feel like we spent a thousand nights in a really bad motel. When God kisses us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words today. Help us to be people who are aggressive in our forgiveness, who are sacrificial in our forgiveness. Help us to be people who create a community where we reconcile with one another and that becomes commonplace. Give us strength and the power, Lord Jesus, to do this because we cannot will it on our own. Father, I pray for those like me who are feeling challenged to forgive and they know that it is not easy and it will create suffering and hardship and pain to absorb that debt. But thank you that Christ absorbs so much greater of a debt, the sins of humanity. Help us, Father, to be like you. Holy Spirit, give us strength. Give us power. Give us your compassion to forgive. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Absorb the debt. Do not inflict pain. Trust in God. Amen.